0: Welcome to Sealy Talks. My name is Carolyn Elliot Magwood and I am Senior Rule of Law Fellow at the Sealy Institute Prague. This initial series of four podcasts from Sealy features interviews, conversations, and reports with leading judges, civil society actors and representatives of European institutions that advance the rule of law. Coming up in this final episode in the series, I talk to Andrea Huber, at the OSCE's Office for Democratic Institution and Human Rights, which has been both a monitor and a barometer of challenges to the rule of law resulting from the COVID-19 pandemic. Biliana Gajarova-Vegardstater introduces us to the work of the Bili Foundation in Bulgaria, and my colleague Frida Greeley here in Seeley shines a spotlight on a very useful tool developed by our own judicial network, Social Media Guidelines for Judges. But first, I talked with Judge Vera de about the experience of the Georgian courts in post-pandemic conditions and what the new normal looks like in her country.
1: Everyone who enters a court building here is checked for a temperature, has the obligation to wear a mask, and is provided with a mask if necessary, as well as undergoes hand disinfection with a special spray, I personally adjusted my courtroom to the present situation allowing more space for social distancing between the judge and the parties as well as between the parties and other possible attendees in the courtroom and in addition uh, wearing a mask is a must during the hearing in my courtroom
0: and how have the courts in Georgia been preparing to deal with the increased backlog of cases coming out of the disruptions in service delivery do you have a protocol or guidance to support you as a judge in triaging your caseload?
1: In order to deal with the number of cases at the courts today, we have been using a case e-filing as well as case e-management systems. Case e-filing has been in place for many, many years here in Georgia. Although the service was not free of charge and for that reason or some other, normally parties and their representatives in most cases prefer to present a case to the court personally by coming to the courthouse. We have had protocols and guidelines from the Council of Justice of Georgia. This is a body of the common court system which exists here in this country in order to ensure the independence and efficiency of the common courts. And we have had guidances from the chairman of the police city court as well. These protocols and guidances that are supposed to and do set the list of rules to be obeyed at courts in order to reduce the risk of spreading the COVID-19 virus and in order to do our best to both continue service delivery and protect health of those who come to the courts. One of the new rules introduced by the Council of Justice of Georgia is abolishing fees for e-filing, which has proved to be a timely measure in helping both the parties willing to file a case at the court but hesitating to leave their homes or Doing their best to reduce face to face contacts with our representatives, our court personnel, and the courts. Since both e filing and e management of a case, from my experience, is time saving and more safe these days.
0: You've participated in the webinars that CELI and the Central and Eastern European Judicial Network have organized. And I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about uh, that experience, as well as what regional trends you've seen emerge as you've had those discussions with your colleagues?
1: Yes, indeed. Through participating in the webinars organized by the CELI and the Central Eastern European Judicial Network, I was lucky to have the opportunity to communicate with my European colleagues in these hard times, to hear what the situation caused by the COVID-19 is at their courts, and to share experience and comments about this issue It is obvious that every European country today is dealing with the same issues, uh, trying to implement new methods that would allow the courts to continue uninterrupted and safe service delivery. Today's COVID-19 challenges show that no country is safe from an unexpected identical situation, caused by some other virus, for instance. And courts need to not only be at their best today, but also cherish the experience gained from the COVID-19, implement all the new possible effective methods, and be ready for a situation like this in the future.
0: And one of the particular tools that we've talked a lot about in the webinars was remote judging and video-enabled judging. And what do you think the future of that practice is in the region?
1: Well, remote judging is not new to Georgian civil procedure, and it is one of the methods that I believe could and should be used at courts much more often in the future than it used to be used in pre-COVID-19 times. Remote judging is, in my opinion, not well suitable for any case, nor is it suitable for any and every stage of a hearing. But in many cases, remote judging could well be time-saving when it comes to a preliminary hearing, hearing motions, or closing arguments. I believe it must be left for judicial discretion to decide in which case and when a remote judging is to be used, because every case is of its own kind, not like any other. And considering the fair trial factor, a judge must be the one who decides whether or not remote judging would be admissible and preferable.
0: And to support judges in exercising that discretion, do you think there would be value in guidance from international organizations, for example, on good practices in using this technology? And what would be the most useful way to actually capture the lessons that we're learning about video conferencing during this crisis so that judges can implement them moving forward?
1: Yeah, from technical point of view, absolutely. The CELI webinars we talked about proved that information on good practices that you just mentioned for use of video conferences, technology, conferencing technology in support of remote hearings is of interest to judges. There are technical issues arising when using remote judging, and the more information, the more experience, and guidance shared on these technical matters, the better. In my view and experience of webinar meetings and discussions on the lessons learned and the challenges still to be faced are indispensable for judges. Distributing technical guidance in written form is practical and helpful too.
0: My final question is, I'm just wondering if you could reflect a bit on what you've learned in the past few months and if there's anything that you'll be doing differently in your courtroom as a result of this experience.
1: The past few months proved that globally, in every country of the world, courts will have to continue to better adjust to the new reality, to the new challenges we talked about above, and be prepared for an alike unexpected service hampering situation at any time in the future. For the time being, I keep hearing cases with the new precaution rules, ensuring physical distance and wearing masks in a courtroom watching any and every new rule or protocol issued for the purposes of a better COVID-19 protection and hoping that scientists will soon succeed and deliver good news to all of us.
0: Thank you, Judge dubrovsk Nietzsche. The practices of courts in the region under post-pandemic conditions will be an evolving story that we'll be keeping a close watch on here at Sealy. Another organization that's been monitoring how courts are adapting to the changes in the epidemiological situation across Europe is the OSCE's Office for Democratic Institutions and Human Rights. I spoke to Andrea Huber, the Deputy Chief of Odier's Rule of Law unit, about these matters. We started with an overview of her own role, and that of Odier more generally. Um.
2: My work at Odier is focused very much on judicial independence, the work of the courts, and a bit of criminal justice. I also work on gender diversity and justice, which is a portfolio in which we are trying to promote that women judges and prosecutors have a more equal representation in the judiciary, and that there's also more diversity. Sadly, in many countries, even where you have 50% of women judges, It doesn't mean that they're equally represented in more senior roles, so they're hardly ever court presidents or there are very low numbers in constitutional courts, supreme courts. So we also have a portfolio trying to promote a better representation. There is a policy paper on our website and also a recently completed video clip. My work has also included some criminal justice aspects, which is one of my specialties including a criminal justice forum in Central Asia, for example. But also I have worked with our human rights department to identify systemic incentives for coercion or ill treatment.
0: And what is Odir doing to help judiciaries prepare for coming out of the pandemic?
2: As I mentioned, Odir's uh, rule of law unit uh, has traditionally focused on traditional independence, the work of courts, and fair trial rights. And of course, all of those are heavily affected by the COVID pandemic. And so in the crisis, we saw it as uh, our job to assist participating states and the institutions in those participating states. And those, of course, importantly um, for us, include courts and judges in dealing with the unprecedented challenges that they've been facing in the pandemic. We started with this in early April with a first online meeting to discuss what those challenges are and how courts have tried to adapt and to exchange experiences in what worked well, what didn't work well. And then later in June, as the lockdown ended in a growing number of countries and courts prepared to reopen, we decided to refocus our work on the functioning of courts in the aftermath of the pandemic. What we're doing is mostly conducting research and we're organizing online consultations with judges, uh, members of judges associations, lawyers, NGOs, and also representatives from OSE field operations. And we're trying to exchange experiences. We reached out early on to our partner organizations to ensure that we're not duplicating each other. And within this exercise, We came across Sealy Institute, of course, and uh, we're very pleased about the increased cooperation with the Institute as a result of this, as well as with various other organizations. So
0: what is the situation right now for courts now that we're three months into the pandemic? What's some of what you've been hearing in your consultations?
2: Well, there are some overarching issues that have come up repeatedly and consistently. And one thing I would like to say at the outset is that any measures that are taken in the context of justice systems, of course, need to comply with international law. And the limitations on rights according to international law can only be temporary, and they have to be limited to what is necessary and proportionate under the given circumstances. And that implies that there needs to be a regular review to check whether the measures indeed are still fulfilling these requirements, as we're going through different phases of the pandemic, we constantly need to reevaluate what measures are appropriate and permissible under international law. So at the height of the pandemic, when many countries had a complete lockdown, courts were closed or partly closed, of course that required a quite extreme set of measures to still uphold justice. But now as the courts are reopening and restrictions are eased, the same measures may not be applicable anymore, they may not be proportionate anymore, and so they're not permissible anymore. A second kind of big part in our consultations has been a conflict between the interest in certain centralized solutions in order to ensure that there is clarity and predictability of the decisions for the court users in particular. But at the same time, there needs to be enough flexibility for judges to take decisions on a case-to-case basis, take into account the specifics of the case, but also certain specificities of the courts with regard to their size, their location, or, or the type of the case.
0: What challenges do you anticipate that judiciaries, courts, and litigants are going to face as they move out of the crisis stage of the pandemic?
2: Most of the courts that uh, we have consulted are in some phase of transition right now, are seeing uh, four problems, I would say. One is how to ensure a health and safety protocol in the context of a reopening court. Secondly, how to prioritize the cases. During the pandemic, there was a certain prioritization of urgent cases because it was a very reduced capacity of the courts, but even now, as the courts are reopening, there are still reduced facilities available. And so courts also need to prioritize for which procedures these reduced facilities are going to be allocated. Thirdly, there are new types of cases that are going to reach the courts as a consequence of the pandemic, which are very specific to um, rules and regulations that have been adopted in this context. And last but not least, there's going to be a huge case backlog due to the suspension of cases, which was, of course, unavoidable, especially in countries with a lockdown. For litigants, the challenges are going to be the delay in decisions and access to justice. Certain cases have been prioritized, and this was, of course, necessary, But uh, when one case is prioritized, that means other cases are deprioritized. It may be that there is an incentive to make increased use of the out-of-court settlements, which would be positive, I believe. And also maybe there is an incentive for uh, legislators to reform criminal justice systems and reduce the over-criminalization and over-incarceration including for minor nonviolent crimes, in order to reduce the backlog at the courts. That would be a positive side effect. But to come back to the challenges for litigants, while the courts are not yet at full capacity, it is to be expected that a lot of cases will still be dealt with in writing or with remote hearings. This was, of course, unavoidable and a necessary way to deal with cases during the pandemic, but we must not overlook that there are also challenges and problems that come with this. So firstly, you can only substitute the face-to-face hearing with a video conference hearing if really all individuals that are part of this procedure have the necessary technology. So that is not just the judge or the court, but also the lawyers, the parties, the witnesses, the interpreter, the prosecutor. So all of them need to have a sufficiently reliable video and audio system for the entire duration of the hearing. And then there are people who struggle with new technology, including uh, maybe older persons in particular who are just less familiar with this, but also just people who are less uh, tech-savvy. So we mustn't overlook that it is not that easy to effectively participate in a court hearing that is held via Zoom. But there's also a couple of fair trial issues. I'm just listing a few to uh, illustrate. So first, how at an online hearing do you evaluate and inspect evidence? And it is not quite clear how you would deal with this on a video call. And then very importantly, it is necessary that the lawyer and their client are able to communicate confidentially, including during trial. And so this is also very challenging on the IT call. There are certain solutions, but they all come with problems. Of course, international law requires for a lot of hearings to be public. So there have to be solutions for that, maybe with web streaming or so, but it's also not that obvious how to deal with it, with a remote hearing. And then one thing we're particularly concerned about is the effectiveness of legal representation in such a setting. This is more than just conveying information. And so, for example, in a video conference, if you're a part of the proceeding, you cannot see the entire courtroom. And you also have problems to see the nonverbal cues that determine human interaction so much, and that make it possible for you to maybe assess whether a person speaks the truth, and whether there's something they're holding back. Some movement in the face might tell you a whole lot.
0: Another uh, likely reality as we're moving forward will be new cases arising from challenges to emergency orders and I was wondering if you could speak a bit about what you've heard, what kind of new matters you anticipate coming into the courts and any thoughts on how judiciary should be preparing for this kind of new class of
2: cases? Well, there are two types of new cases which are the most obvious related to the pandemic. One is that there will be constitutional challenges of emergency legislation in many countries. And secondly, individuals have been sanctioned for breach of emergency measures and they might take remedies. And so that is the second kind of big new category of cases. For the latter, this includes excessive fines and other sanctions, for violating quarantine or lockdown and also uh, some countries have introduced administrative or even criminal offences for offences like publication of false or distorted facts relating to the virus or relating to government policies. We've also seen individuals being sanctioned for breach of quarantine when they attended public assemblies, which of course is a human rights and only necessary in proportion that uh, limitations are permissible. The second important thing maybe to mention is that cases that are not new in terms of their type may shift in terms of their numbers. And so during the height of the pandemic, many countries saw a decrease of criminality, but at the same time, an increase was very soon then reported on specific types of offenses, such as domestic violence and hate crimes. And then also, sadly, crime adopts very quickly, and it did so in this pandemic in the shape of cybercrime, so a lot of fake products were sold in online scams, especially with protective equipment, medicine, etc., but also, um, sadly, child pornography online and such offenses. In the area of civil law, it is very clear that we have to expect an increase of labor law cases and employment uh, right cases, but also housing and evictions if people were unable because of the pandemic to pay for their rent. And of course, challenges related to insurance claims, bankruptcy, insolvency. And also, there might be some class action lawsuits by companies who had to shut down because of government policies or who could not reopen, even though other branches of businesses may have already been able to open. So this is outlining the types of cases. How should judiciary prepare I think for starters, it would be good to immediately try to get some training opportunities, especially for these new types of cases. Unfortunately, states of emergency do not happen every day. So it is not surprising if judges do not have the related international law up their sleeves. Also, even if you were familiar with state of emergency related international standards, I think what we've seen in this pandemic is still very extraordinary and very different from other situations. But secondly, I think that judiciary will have to think probably of necessary adaptations in the case allocation. I have mentioned that certain types of cases are likely to increase, so there may be a need to have more judges dealing with those cases. But when doing so, it's crucial that there's no tampering with judicial independence and certainly... The case allocation must not be a way to allocate cases to politically or otherwise convenient judges.
0: You've mentioned throughout our conversation a number of the ways that the courts have changed how they've done business in the past couple months. And as we're moving
2: now to the
0: next stage, are there any new practices that have emerged that should be maintained after the pandemic?
2: (laughs) Yes and no. I would say that uh, no doubt the pandemic has propelled courts a little bit into the brave new digitalized world. And judges who used to be very skeptical of new technologies such as video conferencing have now warmed up to this tool. And so it's not a problem per se to keep using these technologies. I think there will also be a realization that e-filing systems and remote access to case files, et cetera, is a positive thing. But on the other side, as I mentioned, fair trial rights are not perfectly observed in remote hearings. And so we need to keep this in mind and use the necessity and proportionality principle. And I just want to stress that international standards that require presence of the defendant, for example, the presence of the public, that's not to annoy or slow down judges. <laughs> Just give an example, the right to be brought before a court after arrest means literally to be brought before the judge, not virtually. And one of the reasons for that is, of course, that this is the only way in which the judge might be able to tell whether the arrested person may have been ill-treated or even tortured or it has been coerced into giving a confession. It is the only time that the detainee is not entirely in the control of law enforcement or prison personnel. And the Human Rights Committee has stated that videoconferencing is not a way in order to ensure observance of this right. I have heard many times uh, judges in particular stressing how much the remote hearings are efficient and are saving costs. And it may be saves the judges also to face these people accused of crimes. But uh, let's not forget the main goal is the delivery of justice. If this is possible with saving costs, wonderful, let's do it. But efficiency and cost saving cannot overrule international law, and it can certainly not overrule fair trial rights.
0: My final question is: What have we learned from this crisis? What should courts, judges, governments, civil society? Be doing to be more prepared should this happen again or in a second wave?
2: We can learn a lot from the policies that have been developed in some countries during the pandemic and also in the transition afterwards. Odir is trying to contribute to this by collecting all this information and we will try to make available some form of publication that summarizes that. So even if it is not a second wave of this pandemic, even if it is not another pandemic, there may be other instances like natural disasters as a result of climate change that require a quick resolution in a situation where courts cannot function as they usually do. So I think it would be uh, sensible to consider what regulations you can put in place and also to review to what extent technology can be prepared to be at the ready for such situations, but also to carefully monitor and analyze the cases that have been considered by the justice system during this pandemic to learn from the mistakes. We see some studies which make clear that in remote hearings, maybe the chance of being acquitted is lower than if you are in a face-to-face hearing. And we really need to understand why that is the case and how to avoid this. It's also very possible that there has been discrimination of the justice system of certain groups, be that because of the ethical origin or because of sensory problems in a remote hearing. So we need to better understand what impact the changes that were made during this pandemic have on the outcomes. So it's not just about ticking the boxes of procedures, but it is about checking whether we also achieved fair outcomes with these new ways of delivering justice.
0: Thank you, Andrea, for those insightful observations. As Andrea said, it will be crucial to continue to monitor the impact of measures taken in response to the global pandemic on fair outcomes and delivering justice. And we look forward to further findings from her and her office. Now to Bulgaria, where the Bili Foundation operates as an independent, nonpartisan organization working in the areas of judicial and legal reform, anti-corruption, and civic education. Its founder, Biliana Gayarova vegertstader filed a special report on their mission and milestones.
3: Bulgarian Institute for Legal Initiatives Foundation exists now for more than 10 years and is among the most recognizable NGOs in the country in a specific area. During our work, we have constantly tried to respond to the needs of our partners, to develop initiatives which are sustainable and can lead to a bigger change, and to never forget that education is key. Only an informed person can be critical of his or her surroundings and the processes going on. One important aspect of our work is also the building of trust, trust in the institutions and especially trust in the court as the ultimate provider of justice. Some of our initiatives correspond also to the core work of the NGO – monitoring and exercising of civic pressure. We produce statements and analysis on relevant topics and we participate in various national consultative bodies where we can openly criticize the judicial and political establishment and provide expertise. Furthermore, we work in close cooperation with the Bulgarian Judges Association and judges around the country trying to assist them in their daily fight for upholding the independence of the judiciary. Part of our efforts is a program for inviting US judges and other specialists to Bulgaria, where they can meet with their peers and exchange opinions and knowledge. Judiciary is in peril nowadays and the judges, even though they possess a lot of power, are also among the most vulnerable groups in a society. This is especially relevant to Bulgaria, where judiciary is comprised of judges, prosecutors and investigators. It is not a coincidence that at the beginning of every populistic or nationalistic wave, the first to be attacked are the judges and the media. Judges, because of their independence and ultimate goal to protect the rule of law, and uphold equal justice and media because of its job to shed light over truth and ask the difficult and uncomfortable questions. In the last couple of years, the situation with the rule of law is steadily deteriorating and this is relevant not only to Bulgaria. We observe that trust is shifting from the institutions, including the court, to unstructured groups of people or even parties, which try to undermine the very meaning of the rule of law. Young democracies like ours are especially vulnerable to these processes. A logical question comes, why is this happening? To a large extent, it is a result of specific social and political circumstances which lead to increased attacks against the rule of law. In that environment, active members of the civil society play a very important role. This big framework is especially relevant now in the so-called new normal, the new reality. A life with a constant threat coming from COVID-19. This extraordinary situation has put courts and the judiciary to a test, challenging the very substance of judges' work, public, impartial and unbiased justice for all. It has also put on the scale fundamental values like basic human rights and freedoms and human life and existence. One cannot help but asking, should democracy and rule of law be sacrificed in the battle with the virus? The answer is that there is no singular approach in responding to that question. However, it should be absolutely clear that neither democratic achievements nor the rule of law should be suspended these days. On the contrary, the safeguarding of the rule of law, the independence of the judiciary and the judges should be a constant effort coming from all members of the society, and it should boil down to the clear understanding that it is the rule of law upholding the democracy, and without it, no liberty and progress can be achieved.
0: Thank you, Biliana, for the important reminder that safeguarding the rule of law is a constant challenge that has become even more urgent in the volatile times in which we currently live. We're going to turn our attention now to my colleague, Frida Greeley, who, in her spotlight report, tells us about the social media guidelines developed by our own judicial network. In this episode I want to share
4: with you some more work that the Celie Institute has produced with a group of eight judges from the judicial network and this is the publication of the practical guidelines on the use of social media by judges in a central and eastern European context. The network Which has been going since 2012 is comprised of some of the best and brightest young judges from 18 countries in the region who gather regularly to share best practices on issues of judicial independence integrity accountability and court management the guidelines recognize that participation on social media platforms is an intrinsic part of modern life they also recognize that for many judges Participation on social media actually contributes to their public outreach efforts and their effort to build public interest in and trust of the judiciary. Since there's been very little specific standards or guidance to date regarding these issues, judges often have to come up with their own individual solutions or approaches, which might lead them into situations involving conflicts of interest and ethical dilemmas. The new guidelines summarize discussions that the network members have had over the past several years and provide recommendations for behaviour and conduct on social media. The document is relevant to any individual judge who is active on social media, as well as to anyone responsible for setting national guidelines for judicial conduct. This includes members of judicial councils, court presidents, officials from judicial associations and any other members of the judiciary who need to set regulations on the behaviour of judges on social media. The guidelines are freely available on the website at celiinstitute.org and have been translated into many languages, including Czech, Romanian, Bulgarian, Macedonian, and Polish.
0: Thank you, Frida. And thank you to all our contributors, not just for this episode, but for this entire first series. This episode concludes this podcast series on safeguarding the rule of law in challenging times. This series was launched by Seely to support and provide solidarity to members of the judiciary and to inform the public about increased challenges to the already fragile rule of law and administration of justice across Central and Eastern Europe arising from emergency COVID-19 measures. In the course of the series, we talked to a number of insightful guests, including Judge Jose Matos, president of the European Association of Judges, and Judge Edith Zeller, president of the Association of European Administrative Judges. Episode one examined the big picture of the state of the rule of law during this current pandemic, while episodes two and three dug into issues surrounding access to justice in criminal, administrative, and civil courts. Finally, today, we took a look at what comes next as countries exit lockdown. Along the way, we looked at the state of the law and heard some personal stories, which allowed us to examine the importance of maintaining judicial independence during a state of emergency, safeguarding defense rights in video link trials, and keeping court users safe from COVID-19 as operations resume. Whether you are a judge or a member of the public, we hope we provided you with some food for thought and a sense of collective endeavor in the continued efforts to advance the rule of law. As always, for more information, resources, and the transcript of the show, as well as for information on our next series, scheduled for the autumn of 2020, you can visit us at seelyinstitute.org. This is Sealy Talks. Till next time, I'm Carolyn Elliott-Megwood. Thanks for listening.